This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to a special edition of the Ion Travel Podcast from Washington, D.C., where I co-hosted with Major Garrett, the chief Washington correspondent of CBS News, a CBS News town hall on the current state of air travel 2022 with some of the leading stakeholders in the travel industry and government. Ranging from Robin Hayes, the CEO of JetBlue, and Karen Seidman-Becker, the CEO of Clear, to Admiral David Pekoski, the administrator of the TSA, Sarah Nelson, the head of the Flight Attendants Union, Dennis Tager, the head of the American Airlines Pilots Union, Nick Calio from Airlines for America, Charlie Leoka from Travelers United, and Sean Donahue, the CEO of the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. So fasten your seatbelts. This is a full and wide-ranging conversation And we'll start with Robin Hayes, the CEO of JetBlue. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. At Amica Insurance... 
we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. So, Robin, in starting, I think it's safe to say that nobody here is going to claim that they were prepared for what happened two and a half years ago. I think it was industry-wide. Uh, it was a, a, disruptive asp- a, a disruptive event of unparalleled proportions. Uh, so the question I really want to ask you first is, how were you unprepared? And then what did you do initially, short-term? What did you do long-term? How did it change your thinking? And, and did you have to throw the playbook out the window? Yeah, well, uh, thanks, Peter. Good morning, everyone. I uh, hope everyone's like, doing okay. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so when COVID hit, um, you know, what, there's so many memories that, that we have. And uh, I remember being over in London, uh, and uh, I was there to uh, talk to folks at Gatwick Airport. I had a meeting with the CEO of Airbus. And then just over coffee, you know, I casually mentioned, hey, are you seeing, you know, any of your customers in uh, Asia seeing any impact from COVID yet? To which I got, like, yeah, maybe something. You know, and then literally within two or three weeks later, uh, we're back in the U.S. and, and loads are down to, you know, 10, 15 percent of normal. So it was, uh, it was really frightening. I, I would say whilst we did not have a playbook for that, um, it was a single mission focus. And, you know, we were able to kind of do all the things we needed to do to, um, you know, get the airplane sat down, um, protect jobs. The CARES Act was tremendously helpful in, in the U.S., um, but I remember thinking at the time, which is probably where you're going to go on to, so I'll sort of uh, be short, the ramp up is going to be much harder than the ramp down. Uh, and all the focus was on the ramp down. Well, it always is. Yeah, well, all the focus on the ramp down, and you don't know when the ramp up's going to start, and when the ramp up does start, you don't know how quickly it's going to come, and that definitely challenged us all. How did it change the way you approached, because we, we have so many issues to discuss today, whether it's staffing, inflation, fuel, air traffic control, pilots, flight attendants, not to mention passengers, what did you have to address first? Well, I mean, if I go back to 2020, 2021, um, you know, we had to pivot as JetBlue out the Northeast pretty quickly because the Northeast was definitely one of the most impacted uh, geographies. So, you know, we had to make sure that things like slot waivers would get um, um, uh, approved so that we could pull down the flying. Uh, we had to fly to markets that we never flew. I mean, we opened 100 new routes. And when a, you mentioned slot waivers, you're yeah. talking about maintaining your slots even if you weren't operating. Correct, because, you know, LaGuardia, JFK, I mean, there was no one on the airplanes, and um, a lot of the country had sort of uh, was flying in and out of Florida. So we, 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 we were trying to preserve cash. So we were trying to just generate as much short-term cash as we could. We were losing millions of dollars a day. And so we opened um, 100 new routes to various leisure markets. Um, Cancun became very popular. Florida became popular um, just to try to generate cash. And of course, when you open that many cities in a short space of time, it's very challenging, especially in the middle of a pandemic. Southwest Airlines is an example. If you go pre-pandemic, in a given year, the number of new routes that they would announce might be one. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were announcing 20 and 30, but they didn't stay and yours didn't stay. Yeah, so, um, you know, it's not often we have bigger numbers in Southwest because they're so much bigger than we are, but 100 versus 25, I'll take that. No, I mean, uh, a, a large number of those have gone. 
Uh, because, you know, whilst they were good to generate cash, they weren't very productive. You know, they weren't very efficient trips. It was a lot of three, four day a week uh, operations. And then as the Northeast started to kind of return to normal, we needed to be in a position to move the airplanes back and recapture that demand. And then, of course, you mentioned the Northeast. Well, let's not forget the, the Southeast, and that's Florida. Is the nexus of airline misery Florida? No, um, I don't think so. I mean, I think it was very challenging earlier in the year. Um, I think there were much publicized, uh, you know, number of issues in Florida which have been written about, so I won't, I won't repeat them here. We certainly... You can talk about them. Well, we certainly, you know, um, you had the, uh, just the amount of additional flights going into Florida. Uh, you had the rocket launch industry that had grown a lot in the uh, three years. Uh, you had staffing uh, challenges in the Jacksonville uh, center, and you had just airlines had pointed a lot of capacity at Florida in a short space of time. So, you know, we created this kind of dynamic where the system couldn't handle the number of flights. I remember, you know, JetBlue, we had a very challenging April. It was our worst month of the year by far. And I look back in that first 20 days of April, we were in ground delay programs for 115 hours of that. You know, in other words, you know, you're, you're talking about the best part of uh, seven hours, six, seven hours a day, you're in lengthy ground delay programs, and 40, 45% of our flights go in and out of Florida every day, and it was really hard to recover from. And if you look at the rest of the air traffic system on all the airlines, one third of their flights are somehow going through Florida. Yeah, I mean, Florida is one of those markets that has grown significantly during COVID, and, um, you know, and I, I think that... Um, it, it definitely, I will say though, the industry and the FAA came together in April. Um, there were a lot of really good discussions. And I would say I've been pleased that the um, flo uh, traffic in and out of Florida this summer has held up as well as it has. It could have been, it could have been a, lot, uh, a lot worse. I remember pre-pandemic when we had a situation in Florida where then President uh, George W. Bush opened up the military airways. Mm -hmm. Is that a viable solution now? Yeah, and we've seen that. I mean, I think, I think, again, there's been really good cooperation. A number of really good things have happened. Um, also, route closures around rocket launches have shrunk. So, you know, they've reduced the envelope that the airspace is closed. Military airspace is available when we, we can get it. And, um, you know, I think all of those have gone to um, improve um, how Florida has turned out since April. Now, the other elephant in the room, which everybody's going to address at one point or another, the famous two words, pilot shortage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know, I think this is a, uh, something that you have to describe very carefully. So from a JetBlue point of view, we do not have a pilot shortage. In fact, we have, in June this summer, uh, we had 16% more pilots flying 11% less capacity. Uh, the numbers of reserve pilots we have are up by a third. So, um, you know, we have certainly, um, uh, you know, I think done everything we can to stay ahead of uh, the demand and in, in, introduce more robustness in the system. Um, now, we are seeing more pilots leave and we're having to hire more pilots. So I think for an airline like JetBlue that used to be a destination airline, suddenly we're seeing more pilots leave to go to the legacy uh, airlines. And so we've had to really uh, ramp up our hiring to make sure that uh, we can hire more to offset the increased numbers of pilots leaving. And ramp up the pay. Um, yeah, I mean, our, uh, our contract has uh, just uh, uh, opened. Um, we, did, we did have a 3% increase uh, this year that pilots got, but there's no doubt there's going to be a, you know, a significant reset in pilot pay here in the U.S. Now, a number of airlines going into the fourth quarter have slashed thousands of flights from their schedule. Mm -hmm. American, I think 31,000 flights, mm -hmm. about 16% of their capacity. 
What's your situation? Yeah, so we've, I would say we're trimming rather than slashing. Um, well, 31,000 uh, is not a trim. No, no, no. I, I, yeah, but I said we. Oh, excuse um, me. Um, I don't want to speak to my friends at American um, because we compete with them, you know. Um, <laughs> But, Inside um, joke. Go ahead. Um, but um, uh, what was I talking about? No, so, um, uh, no, I mean, I think we, we took action in April. Because of the challenges we had in Florida, we cut capacity early. So we cut it from April. We cut it for the rest of the uh, year. So we will, we will show a little bit of capacity growth in the, in the fourth quarter compared to 2019. Um, we've trimmed a little bit, but most of it we've, we pulled down months ago. Last question, and Robin will be joining our panel in a little bit. You were an airline that basically prided yourself on not canceling flights. Mm -hmm. You were an airline that prided yourself on not bumping passengers. Mm -hmm. That did not happen during the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I think the worst time actually, you know, there's been a lot of focus on the summer for obvious reasons, but I think the worst time for me was uh, the Omicron um, crisis. I mean, it, it came on so quickly. Um, I mean, it really was the definition of exponential. And um, I mean, I remember in the course of two or three weeks, being very confident from the flying the schedule to you know wiping 15 to 20 percent of flights over the holidays. There's nothing we could do. I mean, we had people calling out in record numbers because of COVID. Uh, we had customers uh, calling out because they couldn't do trips. This thing was very transmissive, as we know. Um, but then, as quickly as it came to town, it left town. Uh, and so, really, by mid to late January, we were sort of back on track. Robin, thank you so much. Robin will be joining our second panel coming up in a little bit. Let's stand up for a second. Thank you, thank you Robin. And I'm going to turn it over to Major Garrett. Thanks, Peter. Karen, come on up. And as you've looked around, uh, we have a great number of stakeholders in this audience. You all know one another. We'll introduce you all in good, good time, I promise. But uh, for those of you who may not know, Karen Seidman Becker, CEO of CLEAR, is here with us. It's great to have you with us. So just for the audience's benefit, I'm a kind of a air-traveling passenger of a certain age, which means I still like tickets. I like tickets. I get paper tickets, you know? Uh, and I'm an oddity that way. So keep that in mind as I go through these questions. They might be a little on the uh, basic the side. Analog side. Yeah, on the analog side. Very good. Thank you, Karen. Um, so also for a point of reference, I was in Sarasota, Florida with President Bush the morning of 9-11. It's a day we will never forget. It brought us many things in this country that adapted to the realities of that horrible day. One of them was the TSA. We're very grateful to have Admiral Pekoski here. CLEAR grew out as a private entity on top of TSA. I have TSA Pre, I have Global Entry, and I'm a CLEAR customer. So I've sort of merged all of these things. From that perspective, looking at a traveler like me, that's merging a government agency and a government service with a private entity. What do you think the future of that collaboration is and needs to be? So, A, thank you for your membership. We're an identity company obsessed with the customer experience and we have over 13 million travelers today on the platform and growing rapidly. But I think when you look around this room, what you realize is how connected travel is and the power of partnerships, right? So we're partnered with airports, we're partnered with airlines, we're partnered with the government, all on behalf of the traveler experience and making it safer and easier. And I think that there's an enormous alignment around here. And I think that today, my guess is you'll hear a lot about digital identity because I think that identity is foundational to create 
a safer, easier customer experience and that everybody has to work together. So what we've really focused on as the largest identity company obsessed with the customer experience is interoperability, right? Identity is connecting you to all the things that make you you. I know you're analog, mm -hmm. but it's not just a driver's license or a passport, right? When you're an airline customer, you're your driver's license, your loyalty number, your you know KTN, your pre-check, all those things. When you go to a rental car company, you're your driver's license, your mm -hmm. age on it, your credit card, and your loyalty number. And so you're a different, you're the same you, but a different identity. Right. And the job of Clear is to be Switzerland, right? Is to serve partners as they want to be served and connect this travel experience. And so I think that the future of collaboration and the future of these partnerships is incredibly bright. And, you know, a great example is we're working to bring pre-check to the traveling public at a lower price and far more accessible. We open at 4.30 in the morning and close in some places at 11 o'clock or midnight. That is good for travelers, right? That partnership is good between Clear and, in this case, TSA. Working with Delta or United on lounge access, on biometric boarding passes, on things of that nature, that's been good for travelers. And so I think most industries really believe in the power of partnership, and that collaboration needs to come further faster in travel. Analog though I might be, I know I'm being dragged into this future. So um, what is the future of biometrics, of reading, of this identity getting faster, more reliable, and more database-driven? Yeah. So when we started CLEAR 13 years ago, which seems like a really long time ago now, uh, we believed biometrics was the future. They were the future, they were in Brazil for voting, in Asia for financial services, and here in the US for military. And so I believe that biometrics over the past 13 years have come to the consumer space, whether it be touch ID or face ID on your phone, right? That's a one-to-one -one match on your phone or in the cloud. And face, fingerprint, eyes, voice. There's you know, so many different modalities. And so it's about A, being a trusted brand and being privacy protected and everything being opt-in. I think that's incredibly important. Mm -hmm. And I think some tech companies might have crossed the privacy mm -hmm. um, wall. And so I think being really trusted, uh, really secure, and then serving partners where they want to be served. So some people want to be in the cloud. Some people want identity on the phone. We've focused on innovation like SDKs and APIs so it can be a one-app solution embedded in a partner's app or in our own app. And so I believe the future of biometrics face, fingerprint, eyes, voice is very, very bright. You're seeing it for ticketing in sports, in convenience stores. Um, and it's the best innovation to make experiences safer and easier. It just has to be really privacy protected with the consumer and transparency at the front. So for those who are paying attention, it was tough to travel in Europe this summer. There were very, very long lines. Peter has some very helpful notes for me. Dublin, Heathrow, Amsterdam, Lisbon, etc. What kind of things do you learn and do you think we in America in this collaborative process ought to learn from that? Um, it was tough in the U.S. too, not just Not there. as tough though, right? Uh, probably. Look, I think that what we continue to do, innovation is crucial. And you're seeing it in so many different industries. And I think you're going to see it faster in the travel industry. So we've been working, again, with stakeholders coming up with a reserve product to load balance traffic for airports. A customer can make a reservation for free. Um, and so they have greater predictability. 
or pre-check or biometrics or um, really working, if you download the app, on the home to gate, right? Combining traffic, combining the walk from uh, the beginning of security to whatever your gate is, to embedding partnerships like Uber so you can call your car. And so I think that load balancing, that using data to optimize um, the experience and putting that experience together. If you knew when to leave for the airport because you knew traffic and how far the gate was, if you could reserve your parking spot, if you could use biometrics and self-bag check, if you could have e-gates and facial to get through, and then you could have your coffee waiting for you because you did it on your app, those are the kind of experiences that drive automation that have uh, limited employee base serving people in the best way, not in more rote ways and all on behalf of the traveler, and it makes it safer. I get incredibly excited when I think about the next decade. I also think we have to be there, because we're approaching three million travelers a day, and I think in the not-so-distant future, it's gonna be four million, so the need for collaboration and automation and innovation is a here and now. Last question, is Clear gonna have a footprint that will include Europe in the near future? So we've just launched our reserve lanes in Berlin and we're coming to Canada. It's pretty amazing. A thousand people made a reservation on the first day and 2,000 the second day and they were trading them in the secondary market. Uh, who knew? And so I, I do think that there's a really important partnership. Trading uh, what in the secondary trading market? Trading their reservations. Wow. Okay, I don't know. <laughs> big there. You find uh, anything in the secondary and, market, and so, I guess. And um, so I do think that there's ways, I mean, you see what Global Entry has done and Nexus and Sentry and, and weaving different countries together. You see, we created HealthPass during the pandemic, right? Connecting you to your health information, in this case, your uh, vaccine or your testing information, which is part of your identity when you're trying mm -hmm. to travel internationally. And so I do think that there is a global connectedness in this industry that is deeply required. And last thing, no, it's not related to airports. What is going to be the user experience in sports venues and other places like that where Clear has a footprint? Yeah, so you look at a sports stadium, 48,000 people coming to a baseball game, 50% of them come within 15 minutes of game time, 15 minutes before, 15 minutes after. Um, that's a lot of people who need a safer and easier experience that looks a lot like an airline. So uh, biometric ticketing is, is real and is starting to happen. Uh, not only that, but once you get in, there's lines for concessions. So we actually partnered in Las Vegas with the Raiders. You can order a beer in your seat, in your app, because you are your driver's license and your credit card, which says your age and someone brings it to you. Or you can pre-order, or there's merchandise, and then you think about gaming, right? And the need for age verification and geolocation. So I do think sports stadiums are trading at, sports teams are trading at very high prices right now, and salaries are going up. So the need to drive revenues, safety, and the fan experience. Um, and what I do know is the customer delight of consumers who use Clear at LaGuardia and the Yankees game, uh, very, very high. We have almost 100% retention. Karen Seidman Becker. CEO of Clear, thanks so much. Well, first of all, welcome again. Robin, welcome again. Admiral, Sarah, nice to see you. Dennis, glad you made your flight. By the way, how was your flight today? Uh, today, well, by the way, this is what a fatigued pilot sounds like and looks like. <laughs> um, made it late last night, uh, aircraft taken out of service. Actually, the pilots timed out, so it was, I was up on the flight deck in jump seat because we have full airplanes, thank goodness. Um, so made it here, and although the, the bright side was my bag had to be checked, uh, carried one extra, so I had a nice suit. Um, somehow that bag managed to get off the canceled flight and get onto the last flight into uh, Washington National. So there's, there's a positive there, but uh, 
experience as a passenger and as a, a pilot timing out the effects of that. And I don't know what happened to all those folks because the next two flights, which I was fortunate enough to grab a seat on, uh, were full. So um, therein lies the uh, life of our passengers, not just customers, but passengers. Well, speaking of passengers, Karen just talked about biometrics and the numbers that are going up. Admiral, you're all about those numbers right now. Uh, we just had a Labor Day that was actually bigger than 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, more people going through your security checkpoints than ever before. Uh, we've dealt with staffing issues throughout the day. I remember back in, in 2019, way before you came in, you were about 6,000 agents short. Where, where are you now on staffing? Where are you now on training? And then what do the numbers tell you about where we're going from here? Sure, thanks. And, and the numbers tell us, uh, as we looked across the summer, I mean, we pretty much every day in the summer was about a 2 million passenger plus day, which is a pretty robust return uh, to travel to air travel on the part of passengers. Um, as you mentioned, Peter, uh, over Labor Day weekend, uh, we looked at every single day, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday of Labor Day weekend, and many of the days over the course of that weekend were higher, actually, uh, than pre-pandemic levels. And so, uh, you know, all told, uh, a very busy summer for us, um, and, uh, and one that um, uh, was really reflective of the hard work of all the frontline workers. And let's think about that for a second. You know, when you, when you come into an airport uh, and you park your car, uh, you, use, you, know, you see a parking attendant or you're exiting from the parking garage, a parking attendant that's been working really, really hard. Get into the airport um, and you go into the security lane, uh, our officers worked incredibly hard over the course of the summer. Um, our staffing levels are not quite where we want them to be, but we're very aggressively uh, recruiting and our retention actually is becoming uh, much better over time. Um, and a key part of that is gonna be um, whether or not we're able to provide pay equity for our workforce. You know, our workforce, if you compare um, a transportation security officer, our uniformed officers at the checkpoints, who are filling national security positions and have significant responsibility on their shoulders, uh, their pay, if you classified their positions in the same uh, system that the rest of the federal government is in, their pay would be about 30% higher. That's a big, big difference. Um, fortunately, we've had great support from the Congress, from both the House and the Senate, in their marks on the fiscal 23 budget. So it's in both marks. And I'm really optimistic that uh, we get it in the budget once the final budget uh, gets approved, but that's critical. So it's the, the screening officers, um, uh, the canine handlers, all the explosive experts that passengers encounter. And then you, you, know, you go onward on your journey and, and you visit retail shops uh, in the airport. Um, those employees have been working really hard uh, with short staff uh, over the course of the summer. Um, and they see long lines sometimes of people waiting uh, to get a cup of coffee or to get anything uh, that they want to buy before they can onboard their flight. Um, gate agents, um, uh, gate agents and flight attendants, some of the real heroes uh, of this past summer. I mean, I've watched gate agents deal with um, some very irate passengers in an incredibly professional way. Um, the really important thing is that a gate agent makes a judgment as to whether a passenger should board the flight. And that judgment's really critical because if somebody gets on board a flight um, that um, shouldn't be, uh, you just create a problem either at the gate, on the tarmac, or in the air. Um, and then uh, on board the aircraft, flight attendants have done a miraculous job uh, over the course of the summer. Um, we have watched, while, along with the FAA and the FBI, um, a steady number of assaults of flight attendants in, in the performance of their duties and assaults between passengers uh, one to the other. And we're taking very, very aggressive action against those individuals once we complete an investigation. Uh, and pilots and first officers um, have, have done an incredible job as well. Um, you know, a lot of changes in schedules. Uh, 
weather impacts and things of that nature. And so I just think that you know, we need to reflect on uh, all the frontline workers uh, that I mentioned uh, and more and the great work that they have done under some uh, pretty high-pressure situations over the course of the summer. Let me just go back to one staffing question because your frontline guys and women, I mean, that's a very tough job. I actually tried it one day, and after about the eighth bag, my eyes were glazing over, and I was asking for a price check on aisle five. I mean, it was, <laughs> it's tough. So let's go back to those staffing levels. How do you retain them? Yeah, the way, the way you retain them, one, is you pay them what they, what they ought to be paid. I mean, not being paid equitably. When one of our officers looks at another federal employee that might be working in the airport and knows there's a 30% pay differential, um, that's pretty darn significant. Um, the other is that you provide them uh, the support that they need to get the job done. I've always viewed my job as the administrator is to make sure that the frontline workforce, whether it's a federal air marshal, a, a transportation security officer, or anybody that works on our front lines, has the support and the tools they need to get their job done. Uh, one of the things that we've been very focused on uh, with a lot of support from the Congress, a lot of support from airlines and airports is refreshing our technology base. Because you know, I firmly believe that you need to put good tools in the hands of people who make very critical decisions in a very short amount of time um, for eight hours a day on their feet. Um, and oftentimes showing up for a shift like many workers in the aviation industry do at uh, three or four o'clock in the morning to begin. So it is a difficult job, but I'm really proud of the work that they've done. So Sarah, uh, president of Association of Flight Attendants, it's great to have you with us. Admiral Pekoski mentioned flight attendants uh, and the frontline workers on the ground, but they're the frontline workers in the air, a much different place. I don't need to tell you that. What has this summer been like? What are your levels of concern about the future and satisfaction or pride in what you've seen this summer? Well, let me just say, first of all, uh, we're incredibly lucky in the airline industry that Admiral Pekoski agreed to take on another term uh, of office as TSA administrator. I don't know that I've ever seen such a great administrator. And look at the way that he talks about the entire system and how it all works together in building those relationships in the airports and with the airlines and throughout government. And um, I just want to say that flight attendants support uh, getting the TSA agents on the GS schedule ASAP so that they can have that pay that attracts and retains them. And we count on them to be able to do that job because they can stop problems before it gets to the plane. Um, so that's, that's really the issue is that staffing is at its lowest level across the board. So even um, it, when people are going through uh, the TSA checkpoints, if they have to wait longer, they get more frustrated. If there is... Um, not enough people to easily change shifts and uh, change positions. They get more frustrated. Um, they get frustrated anyway because, you know, they've got to undress to show that they're not a threat. And, um, and then they get into the airport, and if the concessions are not staffed up, uh, they're having a hard time getting food or anything that they need, um, and we want people to have food <laughs> and drink, by the way, because it changes uh, their mental capacity. Right. And uh, <laughs> Good or bad. <laughs> yeah, right. And then if there's delayed flights and they're sitting in bars and drinking, that is also a problem. We need to be on the lookout for that. Um, the agents at the gate oftentimes are working by themselves because staffing has been cut. And this is pre-pandemic staffing that was cut, um, not just necessarily a product of the, of the pandemic itself. And so when, when there aren't as many eyes in the airport through the process to be able to identify where those problems are, it's much more likely that the problems end up on the plane. And once they're on the plane and the door is closed mm -hmm. and we're up in the air, um, there's not a lot of options. 
So our options are to look around for helpers on the plane to try to help us uh, to use our de-escalation skills. And I gotta say, uh, incredible kudos to the flight attendants because there are thousands of flights that take off and land without incident. And that's usually because they've been using their de-escalation skills throughout that process. But it's very, very hard because there's fewer of us than ever more people on the planes. Dennis was talking about those full planes. It is a common occurrence. And if I just think about pre-9-11 working as a flight attendant and working uh, 757 across the country, it's minimum staffing on the, on the particular type of aircraft that I'm talking about at four flight attendants, FAA minimum staffing. Routinely, prior to 9-11, those flights were staffed with five flight attendants, so 25% more staffing. And then for load factors, sometimes the airlines would add a sixth, so 50% more staffing. And I can remember showing up to a gate and thinking that I am going to be deadheading back to my base in Boston and showing up and, and all of a sudden something has happened with the crew and now I'm scheduled to work except we're at minimum, we're only at four. And the flight is full because another flight is canceled, so everyone's there. That was not very common pre-9-11. And I have to tell you, um, that was really, really tough. And I would get home exhausted, mm -hmm. one flight across the country. And this is what flight attendants are doing every single day. This is day. the norm now. This is the norm now. And tensions have risen, and um, as uh, the Admiral was pointing out, um, there are some people who believe that the problems on the plane have gone down because we're not hearing those FAA numbers with the mask mandate. Those were typically interactions that were combative but didn't necessarily rise to the violence. That violence has not gone down. And so flight attendants are still facing that, and they're facing it has nothing to do with masks. It has to do with additional aggression on our planes. Can you add one more thing? Yes. Alcohol. Well, yes, thank you. And alcohol. So as they are sitting in the airports and if flights are delayed, they're drinking more. There's fewer people to see. They are not supposed to be boarding our planes if they're inebriated. Um, it, it's federal regulation that they should be denied boarding and, and sit until they dry out a little bit. But short of putting breathalyzers at jetways, which is not the most efficient way to do it, <laughs> what do you do? Oh, well, we... It, you know, we have to do our best to try to look for that, and the gate agent has to be able to try to flag that. But when that gate agent is a single agent trying to check tickets and get everybody on and deal with bags and everything else, these things get missed. Peter, so, you have an idea. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, you I, have I, an I idea? Have, the Admiral's laughing already because we talked about it offline. All right. Let's do the NFL fourth quarter rule where no airport retail establishment, based on the time on your boarding pass, can serve you liquor within 45 minutes of that boarding pass time. Peter, I think that that is a great idea, and it needs to be coupled with no to-go alcohol. So we have to-go alcohol since the pandemic, and people are bringing that to the gate, and sometimes actually even able to order at the gate for alcohol to come to them, and that should not be going on. Well, one of the things, and Robin, you can address this as well, is at one point the airline stopped serving alcohol, right? but then the alcohol started coming back. And I, it may have been your union, Sarah, that said, we want a two drink minimum, or two drink maximum, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a flight. Uh, a, a, a two drink maximum in coach. Why did you separate coach from first class? That was my question. Uh, we did not separate coach from first class. So we were very clear that we wanted a pause on alcohol across the board, because actually during the pandemic, when we were trying to get people to comply with the mask, um, uh, the mask requirement, um, people get more sloppy, uh, and they and they just even if they intend to keep that mask on, they have a harder time doing it when they're drinking. So um, part of the issue was we were saying that there should be no alcohol while we were enforcing that, 
And, um, and then we need to be very careful about that alcohol. And we don't treat first class any different than coach. Robin, the only difference I would say, and yes. I, just want, I do want yeah. to add this, um, is that there are fewer passengers per flight attendant in first class, so it's a little bit easier to watch what's going on and manage it. No question. Robin, Robin alcohol on JetBlue? Um, well, uh, we like to treat all of our customers as if they were first class, so uh, we certainly don't uh, differentiate. But Thank you for that mission statement. Um, no, I think, um, look, I think the other challenge that we've got is even, uh, you know, as I said in the earlier panel, at JetBlue, we don't have a staffing challenge. I mean, we are in every department ahead of 2019 numbers on less capacity. So, you know, in-flight, for example, I have the opposite issue. I've got that in-flight concern. They can't get the hours into September, October because we've hired so many because it's a balance. But we have a lot of new people. And, you know, to Sarah's point around the sort of role of a gate agent, I mean, you're, you're you know, it's all the, th it's a really hard job. I mean, it's how I started my career. It's really, really hard. And you're not just checking for customers who may have had too much to drink. You know, is there baggage uh, policy? You know, they conform to baggage policy. Um, you're checking the name and the number on the boarding pass. It's a really hard job. And we have a lot of new people. So whilst we've ramped up hiring the record numbers, we lost a lot of very experienced people during COVID. And so what that often means is that when you're put into any environment, whether it's in-flight, whether it's uh, airport, uh, you don't necessarily have those sort of experienced uh, uh, crew members around you that you can kind of lean on. And so I think that's part of the, you know, there's a lot of folks on staffing, which is fair enough, but I don't think there's enough conversation around just the amount of experience that we've lost as we've gone through COVID across all of the aviation ecosystem, both airlines and all of the companies and organizations that support airlines. And I just want to add to what Sarah said. I just want to thank the administrator. You don't, I mean, I mean, I remember when we first started coming to meetings years ago, and it was bash the TSA day at the A4A board meetings. Uh, and it hasn't been like that for years, because uh, the, the David and his team have done just an amazing job, and the collaboration and the partnership. And honestly, the TSA um, lines were not even on my radar this summer, which I think talks to, despite the challenges, what a great job you and your team did coming into it. So the common theme for this conversation is airlines. Nick Callio is president of airlines of America. Nick, I've known you for many, many years. I always appreciate your candor, cutting through things. Um, all of this flows through your clients, the entire experience, uh, staffing and the customer experience, scheduling, cancellations, prices, all of that has been in the news this summer in a very big way. Huge adjustments to passengers wanting to travel again for the first time in basically two and a half years. Give me a holistic assessment of where the industry is and some of the things you've heard this morning. I'm positive about the, am I on? Okay. Yeah, I'm positive. Always. I'm positive always about there. the, yes, always. I'm positive about the industry. Look, it was widely predicted that demand would not recover until 2024. It's recovered, pretty much. I mean, Dave's numbers, our numbers, um, tell that story. I would say that early in the summer, were we caught by surprise? Yes. Um, we were already hiring people at a very aggressive rate to get people back. We did lose a lot of people during COVID. Um, people have chosen not to come back to work. This is not unique to the airline industry, is what you, you know, we all have to recognize. Uh, but we will come back faster. Um, I disagree with what Karen said about Europe. Europe is way behind the United States. 100%. Way behind. I've been there, and it is nightmarish. And the reason we are way ahead is because our government, our industry, and all of its various aspects got together 
and learned a lesson from 9-11, if I can say. Um, I was at the White House at the time, as you know. Mm -hmm. um, and we put that loan program together to try to help the airlines who were all scrambling. And we made it so rigorous that one airline used it and a bunch of airlines went bankrupt. What happened, we started scrambling. You know, you talk about what JetBlue had to do and all our other members had to do. They were bleeding cash. They borrowed money. Um, they went after early retirement and voluntary leaves. And then we got the lifeline. And every bit of that money went directly into the pockets of employees, kept them paying taxes, off the unemployment, and ready to go. Did it cover everybody? No. And here's something people need to focus on, too. For all the money we got, 55% of it covered payroll costs that we paid out during that time. The rest were we paid out ourselves and in loans. So it wasn't a zero-sum game by any stretch of the imagination. But it put our industry, our U.S. industry, in a much better position than our counterparts around the world. And, you know, the people, a lot of people up here, we worked our tails off to get it done. And if you recall October, when they didn't meet the deadline for the second one, tens of thousands of people had to be laid off. And it's like there was a big surprise on Capitol Hill. You know, oh, God, you were serious? Well, yeah, absolutely. So I think the state of the industry, we have challenges, we have headwinds. Right now, fuel is 87% higher than it was in 2019. Our interest costs, because of all the money we had to borrow, are three times what they were in 2019. You know, we, at the time COVID hit, had so-called fortress balance sheets that were going to withstand an event three times worse than 9-11. Wow. I mean, the mm. bottom fell out so fast and so hard. So we've learned a lot. We're learning as we go because we have, as people like to say, a new normal. So for context, this COVID experience was much worse. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Uh, it was Three to four times the magnitude of the losses absorbed. More, more, way more, more, way more. more. Exponentially more. Mm -hmm. um, we were, you know, we had our board meeting on March 4th. We were talking about what was happening. And, you know, within a week, all those predictions um, about what might happen were wrong. We had no idea how long the pandemic would last. Uh, we spent, the board spent over a week in the A4A boardroom. And Sarah came over one night, um, and you know we were eating chips and drinking red wine because you couldn't get anything else. Um, thank God for my stock in the office, I must say. But um, <laughs> it was good. It was good. <laughs> uh, at any rate, long way of saying, look, travel has come back. We are working to meet the demand in as seamless a fashion as possible. We've been working at it every day. The uptick in technology has been great. We will continue to make improvements. We've cut schedules because we don't. The notion that any airline wants a cancellation or a de delay is crazy. Just crazy. Well, I go back Peter. to this summer. I'm talking about crazy, and I'll talk about this a little bit later with, with Sean from DFW. When was the last time you heard of an airport, I'm referring to London, putting a cap on the number of passengers they're going to allow in the airport. When was the last time you heard of an airport in Amsterdam saying, we're not, taking, we're not going to let you sell tickets? Yeah. I mean, this is unheard of, right? Not part of your business plan, Robin. No, I mean, um, it was, um, you know, it, it was, it, I mean, so many new things have happened. Like, sometimes speechless, you'd wake up and say, oh, my goodness, I can't believe they've just done that. 
Um, I can't, you know, and I think, I mean, I just want to, like, we have an amazing industry, and certainly we can look back at this summer, and there are all things that we can do differently to do better, but the, the people that work in our industry are incredible. These are really hard jobs. Getting an airplane up and down safely every day is a miracle of flight, and it starts with the person who's in the materials um, you know, um, component store in the, in the maintenance warehouse to make sure if there's a maintenance issue, the part's fixed. The, the geo team, the airport team, the in-flight team, the pilots, all the team that support them, all of the teams that airlines rely on around us. It is a miracle what we do. And certainly we have stumbled and there are some things that we need to, 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 to do better. But I actually think compared to what it could have been uh, had we not sort of all worked together back in the dark days of COVID, um, we should be actually uh, pleased that the US industry has come back. There's no major airline bankruptcies. There's no major fleets on the ground. There are people hiring every department. And yes, in certain areas, you know, we've, we've stre uh, stressed it to, to the edges, but we have a strong industry here, and we are back, and we're going to get better as we get into next year. Dennis Tager is with us, right. uh, as mentioned by Peter at, off the top. Uh, he's a pilot for American. Yes, sir and uh, has a rather significant position within the American, I mean, Allied Pilots Association. So Dennis, uh, your perspective as one of the miracle workers that Robin just uh, referred to, who gets the plane up and down uh, routinely, and the stresses and or complications, both this summer and you foresee for pilots. Well, it's not a miracle, it's a plan. And a plan that everyone here who represents the stakeholders and the frontline workers makes happen. But I was, wanted to lunge out of my seat during this discussion about security. And uh, Nikki had mentioned we learned a lot of lessons from 9-11. Let's go to security. We are still battling for a second barrier to the flight deck door. Now, thank goodness the FAA has an open comment period. But that's just to put a second barrier. It's a wire mesh. So when I come out for a physiological break, someone who has a plan to breach the cockpit during that time is hindered. We're still battling for that. We just had the 21st anniversary. And Admiral, thank you for the work you've done. I served in the military. The moment that we have another attack on our aircraft, our country will likely respond. Let me bring this to home. Somebody's son and daughter will be dispatched to a foreign country to render justice and to prevent this from happening again. We are literally arguing over a barrier that costs about $5,000, and they bifurcated it out. Some clients that folks on this panel represent bifurcated it out. They would only be on new produced airplanes. Are you kidding me? I, there are thousands of airplanes out there. I fly the line. It's time to get this done. And the Serencini uh, Act, it's a HR 911, sponsored, uh, uh, led by uh, Congressman Fitzpatrick. It's a bipartisan bill. It's time for this thing to pass. I'll get on to what happened during the pandemic. $54 billion of taxpayer investment came into the airlines to prevent the airlines from collapsing. We are ever grateful for that, and it worked. But a second component of it was to ensure that we were ready for the recovery. There was a comment made, we didn't expect demand to come back in 2024, until 2024. Well, guess what? The American traveler came back, and they came back in force. Airlines, including my airline, 
had early retirements incentivized. Now, I don't know, I thought the payroll was 2019 and the money was covered to uh, keep everybody current. But for pilots, we had 1,000 pilots that were incentivized to retire early. 100 airplanes at American Airlines were parked for a financial decision, a proper one, but they didn't retrain the pilots during that time when we were all sitting around getting paid. We had leaves of absence where pilots were supposed to be kept current. They weren't. And then at American Uniquely, we did furlough 1,600 pilots, and they weren't kept current when they got called back after the PSP came in. This was the beginning of the pilot training pipeline failure. And airlines, including American Airlines, are still suffering from this mismanagement. And now our airlines are cutting back capacity. Our, our CEO said in January that we have met, scheduled the airline for the resources that we have. Just two weeks ago, he said the same thing going forward. There is so much uncertainty in the fall and winter schedule that we cannot be silent. Instead of, and, and matter of fact, at our airline, they say they're not effectively utilizing the folks that they have. I'll go further than that. On pilot side, they are recklessly utilizing us on two levels. One, it undermines the reliability because we time out. Secretary Buttigieg has hit this out of the park. There aren't buffers there for normal operations. They just timed out yesterday. Two weeks ago, I timed out after a 12-hour day, had about one hour to play with. The other side of it is fatigue calls. It's the margin of safety that is being squeezed. When you build an airline to the maximums, just because it's legal, we have a saying on the flight deck, just because it's legal doesn't mean it's safe or smart. We've had a tenfold increase in fatigue calls. That's a call I have to make that I'm not safe to continue, and so does my first officer. We sign a document, an electronic document. The FAA endorses that, and every airline honors that. But then the airline has canceled flights, delayed flights. This has got to stop. We've got to get back to a place where we actually run an airline that you're not selling tickets for something you can't fulfill in the end. Sarah, it looks like you want to jump in on this. <laughs> Yes. Uh, so, okay. Um, so we did an incredible job of putting in place the payroll support program, and I think it's important to talk about the different components of it. Um, first of all, uh, with the major airlines, it was 50% of the payroll during 16 months um, of uh, drop demand. Um, it also required continued service to all of our communities, which was really important because this was about keeping our infrastructure in place. And then our unions demanded some constraints um, on executives. So we have a cap on executive compensation that is in place until April of next year, uh, a ban on stock buybacks through the end of this month. And we have launched a no stock buybacks um, campaign uh, asking airlines to take the pledge that they will not send $1 in cash to uh, Wall Street until we fix the things that frankly were uh, problems before the pandemic. So some of what Dennis is talking about on the staffing, there was a drive of productivity, just like every other industry, um, where uh, most airlines were uh, staffing based on overtime hours. And that was part of the problem with this summer, was that they were counting on people being able to pick up at the same rate that they did pre-COVID. And we had the effect of COVID, more people getting sick and calling out. And also, the American worker just taking a moment to take a breath during COVID and say, I'm tired of working two and three jobs just to get by. 
So we had contract negotiations scheduled for, across the industry um, to start in 2020. Almost 700,000 workers at the table um, expected to be solving the problems that had been created over the past 20 years of austerity following 9-11 and the poor response that Nick was referring to. And, um, and uh, we would have been able to solve some of those problems. We would have been able to increase pay. We would have been able to deal with some of the fatigue issues that, that uh, workers had already been identifying pre-pandemic. But all of that got put on hold. So we had a relief program that essentially said, let's freeze this in place. Congress absolutely failed us in October of 2020. Our government absolutely failed us with the lapse in funding, and that created even a bigger push, it wasn't just the people who were furloughed, it was a bigger push by the airlines to get people off the books because, frankly, they had to try to keep their businesses uh, solvent and in place. And when there's a drop in demand, that often leads to furloughs. So instead of that, there was a lot of requests for early outs and, and leaves. And um, we're, we're still suffering from that because that did create a huge backlog in, in the training department um, and everything else. So I think that the contract negotiations are important. It's important to get to these issues on the operation. And it's important to look at staffing across the board, even in the headquarters, answering the crew line so that crews are not waiting for their next assignment and timing out longer because they're kept out longer on the day, not getting to the hotel. There's a lot of areas where we can staff up to help address Peter. this. We're talking about staffing, but earlier we were talking also about scheduling. And one of the things I've noticed, you know it too, Nick, the airlines are not just slashing flights off their schedule, they're slashing routes. Uh, we're seeing, and, and Captain Tager just talked about parking planes, like those 50-seat RJs, the regional jets. Uh, so secondary and, and tertiary markets in America are now at a distinct disadvantage. Uh, as I speak to you today, I think Toledo, Ohio, has no service from American Delta or United. Uh, other cities, Islip, Ithaca, Dubuque, Iowa, Eureka, uh, Eureka, California, Moline, Illinois, I can go on and on and on, are either seeing a substantial reduction or an elimination of service. Where does that put people in those communities if there's no airlift? If you're asking me, it puts them in a difficult position. That part uh, I got. Okay. Uh, it, it also, Peter, as a recognition of reality, you can't afford to be flying people someplace where it costs you more to fly them than, you know, than you're getting paid for. And in a number of cases, I saw the statistics yesterday about a number of those you know, uh, places that have lost service. In a decent portion of those, another airline has stepped in, which is a testament to the competitiveness of our industry. In others, no, it has not happened yet. And if there is an economic case for it, it will happen. It always does. Well, you're talking about the EAS. You talk about the Essential Air Services Agreement. I'm talking about what's happening without EAS, although a number of the places that have been cut are EAS serviced. Right. But in order for somebody to do the EAS, the airline actually has to bid for it. Is that right? Correct. And if nobody bids for it, then what happens? There's no service. There's no service. And that, and that community is effectively cut off. Now, Nick, did you want to have any rebuttal either to Sarah or Dennis? Well, I feel like there's a number of agendas going on here. I'm a little more optimistic about the industry and the job that's being done. Um, I think people are working very hard. Uh, one thing we learned during the pandemic is you can 
plan, but you can't forecast. Um, and, you know, we did everything we could to keep our companies intact so that people would have jobs. Uh, we never thought it would be enough. We thought that the climb out would be much more difficult than what happened. It has proven that. Um, so, you know, we're, we're writing a new playbook. Um, it's not, I, I think, the state of air travel in this country, as evidenced by the demand, people want to go places, they're getting to places. It's full. Uh, we've got a new kind of traveler in many cases, I guess I would say, the, um, what, what are we calling them, the um, inexperienced traveler. Thank and that, that's causing some difficulties, both pre-boarding and on the plane. And so, you know, my, my only rebuttal is this. Look, um, people all worked very hard. It's easy to forget what was going on in terms of where the companies stood, where their employees stood, and we stood together, and that was a very good model. I hope it's one that's going to continue because it will help us come out of this that much faster. Admiral, uh, what do you foresee for the next uh, two to five years for the traveling public? Do you have technology coming online that is something that will not only serve the public but serve your workforce better, make this a more efficient, safer, and confidence building experience? Yeah, thanks, Major. And, and we've been working on technology refresh now for about five years. And a lot of the technology solutions that we uh, had thought of actually proved to be very, very effective during the pandemic because the whole idea was to reduce the level of contact between a passenger uh, and one of our officers. And you have contact when you uh, physically hand your driver's license or your passport to somebody and then take it back from them. We've uh, technologically eliminated that need largely across the system already. Um, additionally, when you uh, get your on-person screening process completed, um, sometimes passengers need to have a pat down. Uh, we have uh, software solutions that we're gonna be deploying uh, beginning next month that reduce the need for those pat-downs. And, and, and what I would cap it all with is that you know, when I look at technology solutions, I'm looking for solutions that do three things all at the same time. One is, uh, first and foremost, is they improve security effectiveness. And, and every single solution that we put in place does that not just by a little, but by a lot. So security effectiveness has gone way up. Um, the second is uh, to improve security efficiency. If you're going to deploy new technology, we ought to be more efficient uh, in the process that, te that technology is involved in. Uh, and that has been achieved with every single piece that we put in place. The third is to improve the passenger experience. You know, Passengers uh, want to get through security as quickly as they can, and they want to um, have to have fewer motion steps in being able to do that. For example, um, hey, I'd rather uh, show up and have my identity verified biometrically for most passengers rather than uh, handing back and forth a hard credential. Or secondly, uh, when I have my carry-on bag, and, and a lot of passengers now just have the carry-on bag and don't check a bag, um, I'd prefer that that bag um, not be opened and searched if it doesn't need to be, and I'd like to leave more things in it. New technology allows uh, you to do that. And then third, um, you know, on-person screening, I, mo most passengers, and I can guarantee you most of our officers don't want to do pat-downs, don't want to receive a pat-down. So we've uh, reduced the need for those significantly as well. So all that technology uh, is critical to, uh, to our future. Two things on just safety and security. Uh, you know, Captain Tager <laughs> talked about the barrier in the cockpit, uh, but we've also, we just touched on assaults on, on flight attendants. Admiral, you've had a situation where the number of assaults on your agents has gone up too. 
Yes, um, the assaults on our agents went up um, uh, largely when the mass mandate was in place. Uh, as the mass mandate came off, uh, those assaults have, re have been reduced, but they're still there. Um, as Sarah mentioned, in flight, totally different story. Uh, the number of assaults, which we've been tracking very carefully since July of 2021, um, actually, most of them that, that um, FAA and TSA investigated had nothing to do with mask wear. Um, and those numbers of assaults, no surprise. I mean, the mask mandate came down, but those number of assaults have stayed uh, relatively steady even to this day. And one other thing in terms of what you're able to basically confiscate at the, at the checkpoints, the number of weapons that you basically confiscated and seized way up. And the statistic that is amazing to me, 86% of them were loaded. Yes, um, and, and so um, we, we've detected um, almost 4,500 weapons uh, this calendar year, firearms this calendar year um, to date. Um, that's a pretty darn high number when you think 4,500 across uh, our entire system. Um, and Peter, you're exact, absolutely right, 86% are loaded. Um, that's a huge concern. And what we're trying to do is to, uh, to educate the public that you absolutely cannot carry a weapon into the secure area of an airport or on board an aircraft. And secondly, if you um, want to carry a weapon, you can. You just have to carry it in your check, you know, you have to put it in your check bag, and there are procedures to do that with the carrier. So um, we, want, we want to continue the education process, but uh, for those passengers that we see carrying a weapon uh, in our checkpoints, that's a very costly mistake, uh, and it's costly in two dimensions. One is uh, it will almost assuredly result in a fine, uh, and a fine can go up to $14,000. Uh, and secondly, if you're a pre-check passenger, it will almost assuredly result in you losing your pre-check privileges at least for five years and depending on the frequency, potentially for a lot more. So we're trying to uh, continue to emphasize to folks that you just can't do that. Sarah, what's the future of uh, liquids on planes and technology to detect them? Will passengers be able to take larger volumes in the future? And Sarah and Dennis, are you comfortable with that potential future? Yeah, uh, and, and that's technology that we're working on. We're not quite there yet. Um, but certainly... What's the uh, aspiration there? The, the, well, the aspiration is um, that we, um, uh, you know, provide more flexibility for passengers, but at the same time make sure that it's absolutely secure um, to do that. And so that's going to require uh, continued advancements in technology and continued advancements in our ability to characterize what those liquids are. Uh, as many people know, during the pandemic, uh, we allowed larger volumes of hand sanitizer. Uh, but that resulted in us having to characterize that, that substance to make sure it was hand sanitizer in our screening process. So we need to find technology solutions that make um, that quicker uh, and more effective. Uh, additionally, uh, for all of our technology, we always put our new technology in pre-check first. Um, because when you, when you think about it, you're still uh, working out the procedures, making sure that um, you're getting the results that you're, you're, you in, you, you've seen in the labs uh, and in some prototype testing. Um, but it's always going to be uh, in pre-check first because those are our trusted travelers. Sarah. Yeah, so I want to put a fine point on this. We did something historic in, in this pandemic, working together as an industry. And it is being heralded around the world as the best relief program, the best response to COVID. And so I want to be very clear, that was unions, government, airlines, all working together to get that done. And uh, that is the kind of spirit that makes things work in aviation. So when flight attendants are getting assaulted on the plane, 
we need more cooperation through all of those constituencies, not less. We need to really learn from what we were able to accomplish in the worst of times and what some people would have said was a political environment that there's no way you could get anything done. Uh, we did something incredibly historic there. In terms of are we comfortable with <laughs> liquids um, coming on the plane? More, uh, more liquids. In more words. liquids, yeah. Um, we, we created the TSA for a reason. We created the TSA after 9-11 because we had um, private security handling the security at each of the airports, for the, usually for the lowest bidder because it was a cost item. We did not have integration of intelligence throughout the entire intelligence community to make sure that our security is responsive to the active threats at the time. And if TSA is working with all of the other intelligence community and can determine that liquids are not a threat at some time or that we can have technology that better identifies where there actually are threats in that liquid, then, then we trust that. And we work, I, I shouldn't say we just, we, we trust outright, we trust and verify. But, uh, but we have that kind of relationship and that dialogue um, and that interplay between the agencies that we really wanna protect and help people understand it's not just theater. There is so much happening behind the scenes that we are helping to determine where those threats may actually be before someone even gets to that security line. And, and, and that's what um, Administrator Pekoski was referring to. And I, I, that's what we have to continue to protect is this interplay between agencies and the interplay between private and government and unions and all of the experts at the table together to make sure that we actually have the best safety and security. Dennis, last word. Uh, there's a reason we have this panel. It's because for this recovery, they made lemons out of lemonade. This is a very successful program, and then it failed in one major component. And everything we're talking about security, it's all about protecting the flight deck. And when someone not just misbehaves, becomes unhinged on the flight deck, and Sarah calls me up, they have mentally breached the flight deck. I have to focus on what flight attendants have been harmed, what do I have here? I might be dealing with an engine failure or low weather. The first officer and I are briefing that. This is a very serious issue, and we commend those who have stepped up the penalties for it. Um, but there's a reason we're at this panel. It's not because uh, we're winning the Super Bowl or the World Series. We have a winning record, and we'll never forget that. But we're not doing enough, and it can get done when all the stakeholders are listened to and we're at the table. And if we're not at the table, we're going to be pounding on the door, guaranteed, because we're going to stand with our passengers because that's the reason we do this. The CBS Town Hall in the State of Air Travel continues with a look at airports, infrastructure, passenger rights, and of course, economic impact. Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. 
and their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back to the second panel. Dealing with airports, infrastructure, passenger passenger rights, sometimes known as an oxymoron, but we'll get to that later. Uh, welcome, please, from the DFW Airport, the CEO of DFW, Sean Donahue. Welcoming back, Karen Seidman-Becker from Clear, and from Travelers United, Charlie Leoka. Uh, I'm gonna start with, with you, Sean, and that is, we haven't had, and this is something you know already, we haven't had a new built airport in this country since 1995 in Denver, right? So. We, we were talking about with the Admiral about safety and security, the same thing with Karen. Airports weren't built for that. The real estate was never built in the airports to accommodate a TSA or a clear. Um, you've had to adjust, right? You're running one of the biggest airports in America. In fact, during the pandemic, I think you were the biggest airport at one point. Uh, so what do you do to adjust for passenger flow? Uh, for, of course, in the service industry, it's not really what happens when they deliver the service, it's what happens when they can't deliver the service in the recovery. So how do you recover as an airport with that kind of flow? Sure, thanks, Peter. Good morning, everybody. And uh, one of our key focus areas in the last two and a half years has been how can we incorporate more predictability into unpredictable times? and. So it's all been, you know, it's been about facilitation and predictability for customers. And to your specific point about security, we're fortunate at DFW, we have 16 different checkpoints. A lot of airports have gone a different route where they'll build these massive central checkpoints. And that probably makes sense economically, but from a customer perspective, at DFW, basically, you can park, go through security, and get to your gate, and it's 100 yards. And, and I don't think we'll ever go to a centralized security checkpoint. The other piece of it is um, using technology. So in all of our checkpoints, we have sensors that will give you real-time weight. So you can go to a checkpoint, and we'll say it's six minutes for pre-check, it's 10 minutes for regular, but it'll also say, 100 yards down the hall, what the checkpoint line weights are there, so customers can opt in and out. And that does a great job of balancing the loads within the terminal. So again, it's all about how can we provide to customers the reassurance that as they go through the airport at DFW, they will have some level of predictability. Well, you just said the key word for me, go through the airport. 
because as a passenger, I'll be honest, I don't get up in the morning uh, to, to go to an airport. I want to go through it. Um, I'm not there for fine dining. I'm not there for retail shopping. I'm not there to entertain my friends. And yet the airport business model sort of works against that because that's how you stay in business with retail and generating revenue, right? So where is the middle point here? And this is a pre-pandemic question, as you can imagine, but it's going to be even more important today as those numbers increase. Where is the middle ground of getting people through the airport, not just to it? Because every time I see those rocking chairs at the Charlotte airport, the subliminal message to me is, you're going to be here a while. Well, you're right, Peter. People, when they wake up in the morning, don't say, man, I'm really looking forward to going to DFW airport. They say, I'm going to get on an airplane and I'm going to a destination. And in, in our job, working with all of our partners, with TSA and, and all the airlines and all of our business partners, is to make that, again, as uh, easy as possible. And, and the model has changed. Um, you know, we, prior to the pandemic, we were actually taking in more revenue uh, from non-airline sources than airline sources. And that's a good thing as an airport. We, we don't want to, to rely solely on airline revenues. We, we want to bring in more revenues from retail and food and beverage and, and things like that. But you can't force that on customers. It's, it's got to be a good experience. Customers, got, they need to feel like it's a, it's a good uh, experience going through an airport, going through DFW. One quick question before I throw it to Major. In your time in motion studies, pre-pandemic, last summer, and looking forward, do you have an estimate on how much time, given a beautiful day and no weather ca cancellations or, or no airline delays, a passenger spends at DFW? Well, there's two answers there. Because 60% of our customers never leave or arrive at DFW, they connect. Mm -hmm. So that changes the dynamic. And, and those customers are, are ones that we really focus on because in many cases, they have the least amount of time and the most amount of stress. So how do we transport them within our facilities uh, to make sure they can make that connection? For the people who are arriving, are they arriving earlier? Yes, they are. Um, are they spending more time in the terminal? Yes, they are. Um, how do we make sure we take good care of them when they're there? And does that also, uh, Sean, go to basic airport design? Because I remember reading an article some time ago about the different ways airports are designed. Destination departure airport as opposed to a hub airport. And the way a destination departure is, it's for the people who come and leave and come back. But hubs are people flow through. And that is fundamental to the way it's designed originally, correct? It is, and if, when DFW Airport was built 50 years ago, 50 they years thought ago. it was gonna be a destination airport. You just they made me feel There was very no old. hub, there was no hub system 50 years ago. And if, if the airport and the airlines knew what DFW was today, they would never have designed the airport, it's because we have five separate terminals. Right. But that's why we've invested in the train system that connects people, so, for a connecting person, connecting customer from the furthest gate to the furthest gate uh, on the train system, uh, it's 19 minutes. Those are the type of time and motion studies we right. do because those are the customers we really have to prioritize because they have the pressure of making their connection. And Karen, from your perspective, uh, Sean mentioned 
16 checkpoints. Some airports have centralized larger ones. In your experience and your visibility, is one system better than another? No, I think that you know, every city and, and every airport, there's a saying, if you've seen one airport, you've seen one airport, and at first I found it annoying, but it's actually a very accurate saying. <laughs> um, no, I, there's great visibility and transparency. DCA just redid their checkpoints, and yes. it's working very, very well, mm -hmm. gone from separate uh, checkpoints to one. You think about Atlanta, Orlando, Dulles, Denver. I think there's challenges. Uh, sometimes it looks like a mosh pit. Uh, you it know, to get into does. an NFL game, and it can be overwhelming mm -hmm. and scary. Um, sometimes it flows very well, and there's great transparency, visibility, and an ability to oversee and control sort of one area. So I, I think it just depends. But I think what you really want to focus on is the customer experience and the fact that people spend a lot of time in airports, not just coming but going through on your way out or on connecting. Mm -hmm. And so really working together and thinking about how to not make your trip start once you land, but in fact, once you arrive at the airport is really important economically. It's a lot of jobs. One out of 10 jobs are in travel. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and a lot of industries and businesses depend on it and consumers deserve it. And so uh, there's a lot of airports now that have chief experience officers, chief innovation officers. So I do think over the next few years with innovation and partnership, you're going to see uh, the experience in airports continue to improve. And Charlie, that's what you're all about, is it not? Charlie. The traveler experience and what the traveler not only can anticipate, but what is delivered under that passenger. Right, and that's something which we've been working at now forever, it seems. And one of the things we're also looking at right now is um, has really been sort of underlined by this whole new dashboard the DOT just set up, where you've got um, a list of all the major airlines, and then they've got X's and checks and so on, to tell you whether what they actually do for passengers when a flight's delayed and when it's canceled. And so one of the other things that we've looked at is we've tried to get the areas where passengers get compensation, such as being denied boarding or such as a lost luggage and so on, and we're trying to get posters put up at airports or materials put up at on the uh, video screens which are controlled by the airports. And then that gives us something to help the consumer, and that also helps the people at the airports. And so we've had lots of blowback from the airlines and, um, and from DOT because they like to make rules, but they don't want to let anyone know what the rules are. Mm -hmm. And that's our problem. Well, let's, let's talk about one of those rules, which goes back a number of years ago, the tarmac delay rule, which you know, we all saw those stories in those harsh winter months of people being kept prisoners on planes for more than three hours. And the DOT did make a rule that basically said if you push back from the gate and you're stuck out there and you don't return your passengers within three hours, you're liable to a fine of up to $27,500 per passenger. Now, those are pretty severe financial consequences. A 737 that's full, you're already in seven figures. The real question becomes then, and I see Captain Tager's here, you can probably report to that, how many serious tarmac delay violations have there been since that rule happened? Right. And the answer is not many. Mm -hmm. So the real question now, when you talk about the dashboard, the dashboard came into being because the DOT was threatening rulemaking. Well, 
the dashboard came into being because there's always been a difference between what they call the contract of carriage, which is the actual contract that you sign when you buy a ticket. Most people never read it, but, but it's there. And then they've got another thing called the, co the customer service plan. And the customer service plan is separate from the contract of carriage. There are no, uh, there's no legality to it. It's just the best case efforts. And so the airlines have always really fought us and they've kept the customer service plan out of the contract of carriage. And this whole new setup is just the same thing that we've always had with the same contract of uh, the same customer service plans, but now they finally publicized it. And all of a sudden it's big news and it's a big PR event. But uh, the airlines have fought this now tooth and nail and it'll be a long time before you find this being coming part of the contract of carriage. So again, if you go to that dashboard as, as a consumer and you see that your plane has been delayed and it's more than three hours and they're gonna give you a meal voucher or they're gonna to attempt to get you a hotel, the problem is what happens if there are no hotel rooms? Then it kicks into reimbursement and the question is what's the limit on reimbursement when the airlines have contracts with hotels that basically are not the Ritz-Carlton? Right. And the other thing is, is that when you have a, um, when you, you can't get a hotel room, the airline will pay you money given in airline credits. Now, once you get an airline credit, every airline has a different system for dealing with airline credits. So the other area that we as consumers have looked at is trying to get some sort of um, uniformity to airline credits. Right. So we know what our airline credits are. If we get cash, we know we can go and spend it. But if we get an airline credit, there's all sorts of requirements. You can only use it on the same type of ticket. You can only use it for yourself. You can't give it to someone else. It's not like getting a gift card. And we think there should be some sort of commonality. And Sean, from your perspective, I have to believe that flight delays, cancellations, I mean, you're the first point of blowback. The, the, the consumer who thought they were gonna go through your airport is now stranded. And they're demonstrably less happy than they were an hour ago. And that's part of your system of dealing with whatever their needs are. How do you view those issues? You're right, Major, and <clears throat> what, and I'll put my, kind of my old airline hat on. Um, our preference, and it's really complicated, and it's very difficult, but um, to Americans' credit, we've noticed in the last couple of months, when there is bad weather forecasted, mm -hmm. I would much rather have the airlines start canceling flights earlier in the day, because that creates actually a better customer experience, because if you try to power through bad weather, um, you're always going to get caught, and then the customer is going to really be the one that pays the, the price. If you cancel earlier in the day, I know that's not great for the customers, right. but it's less disruptive but meaning to the crews. it's better than a daisy chain of delays. Right. It's, it's better for the crews. It's better for the airplanes. It's better for the customers. Um, people maybe never leave home right. um, so they can stay at home. But that's a tough call, and I, mm -hmm. I realize it's a tough call. But sometimes... You know, in some really, really horrible weather situations, 
we've had to take care of literally three or four thousand customers staying in our terminals overnight. Right. What is that? What is that like? I mean, well, what, what, what kind of adaptations do you have to build in for that? What we really focus on is working with all of our business partners to make sure we have concessions open overnight, so people can get something to eat, they can get something to drink. Um, you know, and is that a, a switch you flip? Uh, where, where we they, have where a they, plan. We have a plan, and we have to make that call early in the day. So we'll give an alert to our concessions that says we need a certain amount of concessions to stay open through the night. So you got to shift your staffing, and, and our partners do a great job right. with that. Wow. Karen, oh, go ahead. Peter. You know, well, I was going to go back to one of the things you said, Sean, about you know that 19-minute uh, you know estimate in the brave new world of digital identity. Have you done time and motion studies as to how many minutes you save using biometrics and in that flow of passengers and all those touch points in the airline and airport experience, Karen, can you come up with a number of, of, of time saved? So we did time and motion studies in Atlanta with several partners there, and the number was 20 to 30% efficiency and, and effectiveness, if you will, of getting people through the checkpoints. You also think about force multipliers. So biometric serves as the ATM of identity, right? A human is like a bank teller, and then you have an ATM. The more ATMs you can stack up, the more throughput you can have. And so I do think, um, you know, listening to the first panel today and then hearing Sean, it's a very fragile, interconnected industry. Like how many other businesses do you hear where someone could get stranded, not potentially get food or water mm -hmm. and sleep on the floor with their two children? That leads to the stress on the airplane. Like it all, to your point, daisy chains. And so it really is important to drive automation where you can, and we've married technology with people. So we have 2,700 team members on the front line. They're called ambassadors at Clear. And they truly are obsessed with the customer experience. And so being armed with information, that's hotels locally, that's rental cars, having relationships there and trying to connect people with the right people. You know, you're a stranger in a strange land when you're at an airport you've never mm -hmm. been to before and you don't know what to do. And so really working together as stakeholders, armed with information, technology, and people. Like, look at the Apple stores, right? They now have people helping you what you need to be helped with as opposed to standing behind a cash register. And I think that that serves as the model for so many other customer experiences, getting people out in front of consumers to help them and using technology to automate what you But you, you can, can also anticipate that, is what Sean is saying. Yes. So as a clear member, if I'm stranded, I can go back to a clear kiosk and talk to somebody? Clear team members are armed with information, hotels, rental cars, phone numbers, etc. That's something we learned early, actually, when we started in Orlando. Mm. And in addition to that, we're working uh, on some technology connecting people to the app so that you could actually, we're piloting something in Orlando so that you could call a clear ambassador to come help you through the app. Right, so you think about sort of having good, better, best products. Reserve is free. You can reserve a line. You can um, load balance for an airport, or you can attach an ambassador with a digital app, and you can have somebody come help you and shepherd you through the process. Peter. Sean was talking about 60% of your passengers connecting. So let's talk about that for a second, because it gets into scheduling. It gets into passenger rights. It gets into rulemaking. It gets into all of those things. Mm -hmm. Under deregulation, airlines you know, can fly wherever they want in the United States. They can publish, as long as they've got the slots, they can, they can fly the, any kind of equipment they want to any city that they want. The problem is the connecting flights. Because I'm looking at schedules today, right, and pre-pandemic, that are showing legal 31-minute connect times. 
Not practical, is it, Sean? Or very, very hard to make 31 minutes. Yes, <laughs> very hard. No matter what airport, very hard. Unless right. you're right next, unless your gate's right next to the one you got off of, 31 minutes is a challenge. Right, and uh, with an airport, it doesn't even have to be a big, a big airport like DFW. It's a challenge, especially if you got bags, especially if the first flight's late. It, there's no buffer. There's no there's no fudge time. What's interesting story that just happened uh, about two weeks ago in Australia is that Qantas ordered their 100 top senior managers to leave executive offices and load bags at the airport. And an amazing thing happened within 48 hours of that. They changed their flight schedules to add an other hour for connecting flights because they were realizing it was an impossible job. To move the bags from one flight to, to connect, the To make everything yeah. connect, right? It was costing the airlines a lot of money as well. So what can, you know, this is a question for Charlie, it's a question for all of you. What, what leverage do you have to basically take the airlines out of the competitive reasons of scheduling and into the more practical reasons of getting people where they need to go? Charlie? Well, basically, what we try to do is we try to get the, the airlines to kind of look at reality. And they're always looking at reality. And there's not an airline in the world that doesn't want to have a schedule which they can maintain. Because if, they, if it all works perfectly, it's perfect. And they love it. But the minute that there's a problem, then they've got real prop, they've got real issues that they have to deal with. So you know, when we have a weather in Dallas, all of a sudden we've got more problems and, and delays out of New York. When there's delays of air traffic control in and out of um, um, Florida, then you've got problems with your trans transcontinental flights. So it really becomes an issue where the airlines try to always schedule everything perfectly. They give maybe a five or a ten percent um, override on that in terms of um, issues or in terms of possible problems. But beyond that, then they really have a mess. And this is what we've ended up with this summer. And well, then the question is: Is ten percent enough? I think it's not. Right. Well, ten percent is not enough, and most airlines use a fifteen percent factor for their. Um, uh, what they call the reserves, and sometimes they need better reserves, but they don't have the extra personnel these days, and this all now comes into the staffing issues. So we really are in, in, a, in sort of a mess right now when it comes to what happened this summer, and there's no good way to, to fix it until they get more people hired, and that's what they have to look at right now. Sean, what would you say is the state of air, airports in America? We heard President Biden's comments yesterday. Yesterday. I, I was actually flew out of Boston yesterday when President Biden was up there. And uh, I saw his quote that Logan will be a first class or first rate airport. And I appreciated that because of all the investments and the infrastructure bill, which is great. It isn't now, he said, but will be. Yeah, yeah. and I, I, I kind of chuckled. I, I know my counterpart up there, and I sent him a note saying, I thought you were already a pretty good airport. Um, but in all seriousness, airports do need a lot of investment. Um, and what a lot of people don't understand is every major investment in an airport basically has to be agreed to by the airlines because the airlines pay for all of those capital programs. And so there's always this balance. So at DFW, we have a seven or eight billion dollar capital program through the rest of the decade. And, and those are 
those are very uh, necessary investments we need to make to improve the customer experience, to improve safety. But it's always a balance because American doesn't want DFW to get so costly that it's more costly than other airports. Luckily, we are a pretty inexpensive airport compared to the many other airports. So we, we always have to maintain that balance. Um, but, you know, we all travel globally. Um, we see some pretty incredible yes. airports throughout the world. You're never going to see a, an airport built in the U.S. like Doha. Peter, I know you know Doha very yes. well. Right. They didn't have. I, a, I'm moving there. Soon. Yeah, they, they didn't. They didn't have a budget, and they exceeded it. Right. I think is what happened in Doha. That's not going to happen in the U.S. Exactly. But let me go back to something about scheduling again, because, and and I know you have parallel runways at at, at DFW, but there's and, and I see Captain Tater here, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there's not a runway in the world that can handle more than 23 takeoffs in an hour. Because you've just got to, unless you're running night carrier operations on the deck of a car aircraft carrier. And so that's 23 in a given hour. Why is it then that airlines, and this is pre-pandemic, are allowed to schedule 31 departures at 8 o'clock in the morning? It doesn't compute. It, even I can do the math. So, and that adds to your fuel burn. That adds to your crew time. That adds to misconnected passengers and bags. Is there another way to, in a more, you know, equal way, allow the airlines to schedule non-competitively but more fairly so that you're actually pushing back at a reasonable time that's going to get you to the runway on time. Come on up, Dennis. I, I had to ask that question. Uh, great points. Um, and that comes to the infrastructure of the airline, the flow, the traffic flow, the air traffic controllers that handle that. You've got to have all the stakeholders who are experts in untangling this fish line um, before it gets tangled. Uh, so, you know, we have historic taxi times at Dallas, and it changes. It's, it's very data-driven, and we, I look at it and go, well, we've got 20-minute taxi time. Why yesterday was it only 15? Well, it's because we took off at 0700. So the airlines work very closely with the uh, airport. They work with ATC to ensure that we get as much into that funnel as possible. But as pilots, we're also aware that there are... Uh, there can be a rush to comply as well. That is one of the most uh, dangerous things on the flight deck of trying to, okay, come on, let's go, let's go. We've got to get this done. Um, we have a saying, well, I say in the cockpit, the clock doesn't exist. Once the door's closed, I don't really care about the time. Now, that's, not, that's an overstatement. I do, but it cannot be the thing that drives us. Rushing to comply is one of the fundamental issues that is in many accident reports. So. Uh, bottom line is, is it possible? Yes, but there's just physical limits. And the limits can be, uh, you can get as much out of that, much juice out of that lemon, if you have a team working together. And that's something I've seen American Airlines work with Dallas-Fort Worth very well. And I think you, you were talking about pre-canceling uh, the HEAT program, the Hub Efficiency Analytics Tool, uh, where instead of bringing all the bees back to the hive while the hive is being uh, swarmed with weather, uh, they cancel out, and it has worked uh, much better, so. There you go, Dennis. Uh, Karen, do you have any thoughts on this idea it's better to cancel than delay? Um, I have ideas on some other thoughts that Sean said that might feed into that. One sure. is the power of partnership, and I think airports are in a unique spot to drive revenues from non-airline partners. I think a lot of companies, from Uber to Clear, are really 
love being in the airport and happy to pay. So we pay airports a percentage of our revenue. And I think that's really important in order to drive the opportunity to invest these billions of dollars and make the airport closer to Doha, not maybe totally right. to Doha. <laughs> um, and I also think it's important to start predictability before you leave your home, hotel, whatever, right? Mm. And so putting empowering consumers and travelers with the knowledge before they get moving as early as possible, things like the home to gate app, things that airlines and airports have done is really important. You want people paying attention. Um, I personally think it is better to cancel than delay. Mm -hmm. um, within reason, right? right? The rolling delay means as a, you know, once you walk into an airport as a traveler, you feel like you've lost control. And that is not a good feeling, mm -hmm. specifically if you're nervous about traveling, flying like I am. If you have kids, you've got a business meeting on the other side, the stress just boils. And so totally losing control and then not being able to say to someone, can we move the meeting or I'm going to miss bedtime? That's how it all starts. So I think if it's beyond a certain level or algorithm should tell you that if you're about to push once, it's a, you're about to push 10 more times and then you're toast. I do think it's better to cancel than delay within reason. And Charlie, you mentioned earlier that um, consumers don't have a way to understand either the rule changes or what their rights are or what their basic fundamental interaction can be and how they can be protected. Do you want the de Department of Transportation to make that available? Do you want that to be an app-based thing where you can opt in and ask the DOT for what, what's your right? I mean, that seems like something that could be done, could be put together. Well, yes, that could be done, but... Is, uh, that, is that even a good idea? Well, I think it is a good idea, and it's something which Travelers United is now working on. We're trying to put together a, an app which people then can put on their telephone and find out what's going on, and, uh, and I'm speaking with other partners to try to get them to, to use the app as well. However, DOT has just flat out not done it. And so for the last 10 years, I've been asking to get this done, and it hasn't happened, so now we're going to do it ourselves. Um, the other thing was, when going back to what Biden was saying just the other day, the president was talking about how we can improve the, um, the air airport experience and how we can, we can change aviation. And uh, I gave him like five different things that he could just do with a stroke of a pen that Secretary Buttigieg has already got permission to do from Congress and everyone else. And... What are they? And one is that they need to put up posters at the airports to let people know what their, what their rights are. Bring the mic that's up a little bit higher, Charlie. Bring the mic up a little bit. Yeah, that, that's one thing when they have to um, uh, put posters up at airports. The other thing is that they are, um, uh, they've got the whole setup of, um, of yeah, now, I've, now I've forgotten them, but, but the, the concept is, is that we've already got uh, a system set where we have the ability to let consumers know, but we're not letting them know. And this is something which has really been a problem for uh, consumers and for airports and the aviation system. And in, the sooner that we learn that the better communication there is between the passenger and the airline and the airport, the better we have the ability to deal with problems. And that's what we're looking at. Peter. For years, I can go back maybe 25 years or, no, or more, uh, every year in Congress, at least one or two pieces of legislation is introduced about passenger rights, about holding airlines accountable, about, about what, you know, 
consequences in the event that things don't get delivered, and none of those bills ever leave committee. It just never happens, right? State legislatures have tried to do passenger bills of rights. They've been signed by governors, and of course, the airlines go to court on that. Those are thrown out because of the Federal Deregulation Act of 1978. So that, that really leaves it only up to the U.S. Department of Transportation for rulemaking. The question to all of you is, uh, as passengers now, not as DFW CEO, not as a consumer advocate, not as the CEO of CLEAR, what's your wish list for your passenger bill of rights? As passengers, what would you like to see? I'll go first. Okay. Yeah, go, go, Karen, <laughs> go. Um, I, as a consumer, as a control freak, nervous flyer consumer, so put that, it, it, I want transparency, mm -hmm. right? So I really want to have transparency into right the the parking, the drop off, the security, the bag drop, the location, the food on the other side in one place. Right now, you're we're trying to provide that at Clear, but like you're you're clicking around and it's very very difficult. Um, so I would really like transparency on my experience, and um, I would like one form of consistent communication updating. Uh, so I don't, you know, you get some apps, there's early notifications, other apps, it comes later, you're looking at Flightboard to, to understand where the plane is and why. Like, the, now you can see that the plane is there, but is the crew there, is, right? And so then I can make a probability judgment um, on weather and things of that nature, whether I want to come or change my flight or take the train or drive. So for me, it's transparency and data. And, and Sean, it seemed to me for the traveling public that would help because oftentimes poor crew members who are at the gate have a line of 60 people suddenly and they have limited information and they're getting the same question 60 times. It's a hassle. It, it is. On both sides of that it counter. Is. And, and again, this is not an easy answer. And, and, and airlines want to take good care of their customers. I, I, I know they do. and, and and I know that the summer has been really, really challenging and difficult. The intent is there. What I'd like to see more as a customer is give me a heads up. Um, there's, there's enough historical data out there. Um, there's enough data on you know, predictability around weather. If I'm going to be flying tomorrow from DFW to O'Hare, um, what if an airline said, hey, Sean, you're on the 4 o'clock flight tomorrow. There's probably about a 30% chance your flight's going to be late. Right. There's enough data out there, and there's enough technology that could tell you, and then I could make a decision. Within a range of probability. Right. right. I can yeah, make a you decision. You make your own call. I've got time tomorrow. If it runs late, you know, my business meeting doesn't start to the next day, it's okay. You know what? I have a really tight schedule tomorrow, and I'm going to rebook. That's what I'd like to see. And, and there is data out there that would be able to, to allow you to make, allow the customer to make the decision. Charlie? All of these answers have to do with one thing, letting people know what the rules are. And if we don't know and we don't communicate with each other, we just can't find out what we're, what's happening at an airport. And so I think that what, where DOT and the FAA really can spend their time is just letting people know what the actual rules are today. Most people don't even know how much money they can get from uh, compensation for lost luggage. And what if your luggage is just damaged? And what if you are bumped off of an airplane? Nobody really knows how much money you can get, and it's a lot of money if you get 
uh, bumped off of an airplane, you can get like a thousand, fifteen hundred dollars. Some people and have made careers out of that. <laughs> it, it, it used to be. I used to be, do that an awful lot, but not as much anymore. So here's a question that might be out of left field, but if I've noticed anything that has reshaped my traveling experience at airports and on airlines in the last 10 years, it's been the presence of animals. Either therapy animals or purse dogs or lap or, And I've been on a flight where there's a, there's a medium-sized dog <laughs> well, in the me, seat next to me. And, and I wonder how, how air, air, airports have adapted to that, how uh, the security approach to that. I mean, it's a, it's a thing. Now, maybe well, maybe, maybe was, I'm exaggerating it was, Let's or not. call it what it was for a long period of time. It was a scam. It was called the emotional support animal. Uh, with very, very few exceptions, people took advantage of that. Uh, we did a piece on CBS News where we actually went, and, the only, and what you used to do was you would register online, pay $150 to some psychologist who you never met who would say online that you would snap if, if Fluffy didn't go on the plane with you. And then, there you go. You got a little vest, and here comes Fluffy. What defined Fluffy? So what we did at CBS is we went to a farm in Pennsylvania, and I borrowed a pig. And we, got, we signed up for the pig, and we got the pig the vest, and we did an episode called When Pigs Fly. And, Peter uh, Greenberg, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> but the point is, those rules have now changed. Right. The, the rules have changed, and now there are no more emotional support animals other than dogs. It okay. has to be a dog, and it has to be trained as a service animal. And DOT spent a lot of time work looking at that. Because this is a thing. I mean, this, this whole issue. It right? is. It, and, Go ahead. But it, it used to be a real issue, but right now it's not as much of a problem. If you were to fly today, you'll find very few animals on board. Whereas before, I used to sometimes get on planes when there might be 20 animals on board. And when did these new rules take effect? Trent? Oh, they're in effect they're right, right now. now. Right. Okay, a couple years ago. Karen, yeah. any thoughts on the, on the whole thing? If the government says you can fly and we can identify you, then you can go through a clear lane. So, you know. Do you make accommodations? If, if the, somebody is biometrically verified and they have an animal with them. I mean, we don't take the animal's biometrics, but you, you don't? Not no. there yet? <laughs> Not there yet, but it's something to think about. You're working There's on it. There's always new innovation. Sean? And how have airports ad adopted not only just for this flow through, but obviously you see it, pet relief areas and, and the like? Yeah, the pet relief areas. And to Peter's point and Charlie's point, it's gotten a lot better. Was and, it a scam from your perspective? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And, and I know there are legitimate cases where people need the emotional support animal. I, I get that. I still think some amount of customers are taking advantage of it, though. Mm -hmm. I do think, though, if you just take a step back and look at all of this, it talks to the stressful nature of travel and the difficult nature of people wanting to pack all their bags, not check them, bring their animals, you know, bring their life on the plane. It is very, very difficult uh, to have this whole thing work together. It, people, it, airports are where people are kind of living. You know, they're bringing all their stuff through, and it's it's hard. If you run an airport, you're like the mayor of a city. Sean, should we call Mr. Mayor from now on? No, I, I, <laughs> there's other terms I'd rather be called than mayor. So, <laughs> but the bottom line is, when travel came back, it was led by the leisure sector, yeah. big time. For a lot of people who were first-time flyers, a lot of people who may have only flown once in the last three years, and and as as everybody's saying, they're bringing everything but the kitchen sink, 
uh, with them to the airport. And they're worried about checking it because then they won't get it, so they try to bring it on, but then it gets sent back. It's and, and cascading mess. And to, to, to piggyback off uh, Peter's point, it seems to me one of the things the industry right now is trying to figure out is in this reconfigured work environment, will there be as many business trips? Will the business traveler be as prevalent as the business traveler was pre-pandemic? Uh, any thoughts on that in terms of the data you see, Karen or Sean? You have to redefine the business traveler. We see business travel coming back. We see the coasts coming back. They were down both because of international and because um, of sort of corporate travel. They are coming back. But I also think in this digital hybrid environment, if you move to Cleveland but work in New York, you might not have traveled before because you're an engineer, but you're traveling now back to headquarters six times a year. So I think business travel is being redefined and will continue to grow, and we have seen a strong comeback. Sean? I would agree with Karen. A couple of thoughts, though. Um, big corporate travel has not returned as fast as kind of the smaller company travel. And I'm not sure big corporate managed travel will come back to 100%. I hope it does, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure it will. N number two is um, a lot of, not a lot, but probably 20 or 30% of business travel prior to COVID was internal to the company. Um, you know, for example, Fidelity, uh, based in Boston, has a huge training center outside of DFW Airport. They were transporting people back and forth literally every day. Now with technology, is the internal need for travel going to be there like it used to be? I don't think so. But to Karen's point, on the other side, um, now you have people who are traveling for business, maybe taking their partner with them where they didn't do that before because they're extending for a couple more days. So it's a bit of a yin and yang. Will it ever get back to 100%? I'm not sure. Um, but I think it will eventually get back to maybe 80, 85%. But it's, but it's also changing the calculus and the business plan of most legacy carriers who are dependent on the front of the cabin traffic from the business travel. Charlie? Right. And uh, I worked on a study with um, members of boards of directors of several airlines and with um, um, major other, other journalists and so on. And we determined that about 30% of the business travel is going to fall off. And we broke up the business travel into seven different categories. And most people just look at it as sales. But it's not just sales. And, it, and later on, you get to support uh, things. And then you get to... Um, uh, to areas where you're looking at um, internal meetings and external meetings, and we're looking at uh, trade shows. So all of these things together make a big difference. And that's what, when we're looking at a drop in business travel, which I don't see coming back in the near future. And is that also inclusive of, you mentioned trade shows, conventions, uh, the sort of large gatherings in which you would have a, a hybrid of attendees and business travelers. Right. And you've got attendees and, but all of these systems right now are important for our businesses in terms of interaction, in terms of feedback, in terms of, uh, of getting to know other people and meeting people and seeing what the other industries are doing. So it's, they're important and Trade shows are something which are not going to disappear. Mm -hmm. But internal meetings may be disappearing. Right. Sean? It, it will be really fascinating to see, and Karen might have some data on this, 
I actually think uh, conventions, meeting, trade shows will fully recover and, and maybe actually over exceed where they were. Because at the end of the day, travel is about connecting with people. And, and you're, you're traveling to connect with someone. I'm not talking about connecting flights. And, and there's a spirit of travel that's always been there in my 40 years where you, know, you wanna be with people. And if business travel does decline a little bit, I could make an argument that maybe if I'm not traveling as much on business, when I have an opportunity to go to a convention or a trade show, I'm gonna jump on that because it is my way of connecting. And so we'll see what happens, but uh, I think they're, they're, that, re that rebound I think will be strong. Karen, your thoughts and you'll have the last word. We've seen, com oh, I wish my husband said that. Um, we've seen conferences and events come back. I think people love traveling. That is what you have seen. And so whether it be business, leisure, or bringing a partner or hybrid, I think travel is going up. And uh, how you serve those travelers is the question because they all deserve great, safe experiences. Thanks for listening to this Ion Travel podcast, the special CBS News Town Hall on the state of air travel. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, you know what to do. Just log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.